Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Hey there, this is Nicole, the host and producer of the Found Down Podcast. I just have a few things to say before we get into today's extremely riveting episode. Okay. Number one is I still have some spots open for my next mini nurses retreat, Unwound Retreats. Um, you can go to Found Down Podcast and click on Unwound Retreats and it'll get you over to sign up for the next virtual event. You can get an hour and a half of CEs as well as we're going to be doing some restorative yoga with the amazing Des Wood. And now a word about Found Down's first sponsor. So Nicole Kupchik, CNS educator and author, is offering the Found Down listeners 20% off all of her online classes, Zoom courses, as well as educational books. Use the coupon code FOUNDDOWN20 to get 20% off all of her products at NicoleKupchikConsulting.com. It's lowercase FOUNDDOWN20. I am still working on my cardiac boot camp but I'm learning a lot and actually implemented a couple of new things into my practice just yesterday. So take advantage of this awesome opportunity to empower yourself, brush up on your skills, and to earn some CEs. All right. Okay, let's get to it. Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and today I'm talking to Krista Haugen. She is the director of a major medical ground and air transport company, and she has a background as a flight nurse, ER nurse, and also ICU. And we're going to talk to Krista about her life as a flight nurse and also a crash that changed her and set her on a different trajectory. So, but before we get into any of that, how are you doing today, Krista? Hey, Nicole. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, just one thing, I'm a director of patient safety for the organization, so not the director of the whole organization. I don't want to give myself any more credit than I deserve. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I think I can't complain too much, especially compared to what the folks on the front line are up against. So thanks mm-hmm. for asking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And oh, a quick um, disclaimer. Did you want to? Yes. Did you want me to say that, or you can say that? Sure, please. Yeah, I just, I just want to say that my views are my own, and I'm not representing any organization that I work for in this conversation with you. So, just wanted okay. to put that out there. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Krista. I appreciate that. So yeah. you're you're hanging in. You're doing okay. Doing my best. <laughs> it's less than fun, but you know, we can do it. We'll make it through. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, have you gotten your vaccine yet? And what's the timeline for you? You know, it's a great question. (laughs) I'm not on the front line, so I'm kind of hanging back to let the people who need it right away get it. And then as soon as I'm eligible, I'm going to hop right in line. So I don't really know what that timeline looks like at this point. Okay. Well, hopefully sooner than later. I hope so too. (laughs) So Krista, I feel like and a lot of my fellow colleagues feel this way, that flight nursing is like the creme de la creme of nursing. And and you can work at the top of your license and have the most autonomy. Can you talk about how you got into flight nursing and what you loved about it? What drew you to it? Absolutely. Yes. I am. I'm mostly from Montana. 
And when I was growing up in Montana, I would see the alert helicopter fly over and I always look up and think, wow, you know, what a cool job that would be. Even though I didn't have any intention of that time of going into nursing. <laughs> so, um, mm. you know, I moved out here to the Seattle area to go to school, um, ended up going to nursing school. I'm not even quite sure how that happened. And then, you know, of course, wanted to go right into emergency nursing, um, so I went into a residency straight out of school and learned a ton and absolutely loved it. I love emergency nursing. It was, you know, such a, a great place to be and a great mm. place to, you know, sort of cut my teeth in the, in the nursing world. So um, worked in the emergency department for about, gosh, eight, eight years, I think. And then mm -hmm. I, I had an opportunity to uh, go through sort of an ICU consortium. And so went through the classes and then went to work in the burn ICU, mm. um, which was just amazing experience there. And then um, there was an opening um, at the flight program. And so I just, you know, I, I threw my name in, I'm not expecting to get it because, you know, I just didn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then for some reason, um, I got hired. So it was, you know, I was just ecstatic about that. My stomach dropped a little bit thinking about it, that sort of like you want, wanting wanting to get it and not expecting that you necessarily would. Were you were you like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Now, or, I mean, obviously you were excited, but what was that <laughs> learning curve like? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because even when I first went into ER nursing, of course, that learning curve coming straight out of nursing school was really steep. Um, and then going to the, the ICU, especially the burn ICU, that learning curve was really steep. And then, you know, when I got to, to the, you know, flight program, <laughs> it was incredibly steep. And it was one of those situations where I was like, oh, gosh, they picked the wrong person. I don't belong here. <laughs> but, you know, I, I hung in there and I kept chipping away and, and you know, had some absolutely phenomenal mentors, coaches, you know, co-workers who, you know, really helped me be successful as a flight nurse. So I owe them a debt of gratitude for sure. Mm. How, how long were you a flight nurse? How many years? Uh, total just over six. Oh, cool. What do you love about the, the flight nurse program? What was it for you that was just so great? You know, you listed a lot of it out. It was, it's the autonomy. It is kind of working at the kind of top of the scope of your practice. It's the teamwork, you know, working with a partner, working with a pilot, working with mechanics, communication specialists. Um, the variety is just incredible. And we flew both in helicopters and fixed wing aircraft. Mm. We did, you know, scene responses with, you know, everybody from a volunteer to a really seasoned professional paramedic or team, you know, mm. um, flying around the, just the beauty of the region was just, it's, you know, some, I, I look out the window a lot and, and go, gosh, I can't believe I get to get paid to do this work. Mm. Um, the independence, the, the skills that we can perform, um, you know, that was just, it, it was a tremendous challenge. And it's interesting because those are the things that, that I loved about it. And those are also the things that are kind of terrifying about it at the same time, because, you know, you and your partner, it's just, just you and you're responsible for managing, you know, what are typically what are really critically ill and injured patients for sometimes an extended duration of time. So, yeah. um, you know, I think just the challenge of it. Totally. I mean, I think about like when a patient crashes at my work, right. Um, or just like crashes, meaning decompensates, right. Um, yep and need resuscitation, like there's a team of people. There's a team, of, especially if someone's really circling the drain. And just thinking about that responsibility between two two people, you think, probably must be thinking like, gosh, I mean, there's just so much to do. And obviously, you must have to prioritize. And it's uh, a ton of pressure, but exhilarating at the same time. Is that is that true? I mean, I, I feel that yeah. way at work. But yeah, that's the perfect way to sum it up. I mean, I remember flights where, you know, my partner and I would walk into an operating room to to do an interfacility transport and there'd be, you know, eight or 10 staff members in the operating room with the patient and they're handing the patient off to the two of us. 
and um, you know we're expected to manage you know the patient and, and provide quality care and transport them safely and it's you know it's a tall order but that's kind of the beauty of that that world is that you know that's what people are trained for and prepared to do mm-hmm. in many cases of course covid has thrown a major wrench into that mm-hmm. <laughs> process for a lot of folks but mm-hmm. it kind of goes without saying I just want to ask you about the your sort of the camaraderie that you have with your teammates in, in on like the flight or whatever a helicopter or um, fixed wing aircraft. Like, what is that camaraderie like? You know, um, I've never served in the military, but I almost imagine it's like being in a foxhole with somebody. In mm. fact, um, one of my the flight partners used to used to say, "Look, you know, our our pardon my uh, French here, but our asses are up against the gates of hell here together." And oh. when you think about that, that happens, you know, maybe every shift, maybe multiple times a shift, and so you establish just these incredible bonds with the people you work with because of the circumstances you find yourself in, and that you know you're you're both you're you're both well, not, and even more than that, the pilot as well you know, you're all responsible for managing, you know, these situations and you do that together as a team and teamwork is actually one of the sort of essential, you know, things that we emphasize. It's, there's a concept called crew resource management in aviation and, you know, it has to do with teamwork and communication and working well together and making decisions together and using all of the resources at your disposal to make good decisions and, you know, in my opinion, it belongs, you know, everywhere in the clinical arena, but, you know, particularly in the flight world. And, mm. and so, yeah, those relationships are really, really important and really strong. I got to be honest with you. I'm tearing up a little bit because I just think about the, I mean, they're just really, really special relationships. It's true. Yep. It's definitely tear worthy. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I know that you, we established the, you know, kind of strong bonds with the people that we work with in the, in the ER and the ICU as well. Um, cause you do, you go through hard times together. Um, it's just, it seems to be, there's just another, another layer to it, um, mm-hmm. in the flight world sometimes. Well, it's just like you and your other person just dealing with yep. this one really sick individual. I, there's just, I can't, it's just so intense, such, I mean, maybe you might be calling a doc on the ground. I, I mean, I don't, is that true? Sometimes it's like your lifeline. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of the phone a friend, you know. Um, <laughs> we when I flew, we we could contact our medical director at any time. I mean, he was he was just phenomenal about that, and he knew when we were neck deep into you know a situation, and he would have you know sound sage words of wisdom for us, <laughs> and uh, was always That's really great. helpful. So yeah, we definitely have access to you know, medical directors and, you know, there's great training too. you know, the medical directors help Mm. participate in the training and we've got, you know, some great educators that help us with training and stuff too, to help, you know, prepare folks as much as they can be prepared for Mm. what they're going to encounter out there. Yeah. Cause it could be anything. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's the wild card of it. I was talking, the first episode of the show, I interviewed a flight nurse who's about a year into his training we just talked about like sometimes all you get is coordinates and yeah. you figure out, okay, you're close to a freeway. It's probably a car wreck. Like, wow. Yeah, it's true. You know, you might get just a little bit of information and then you have to assimilate, you know, a great deal of information once you get there. And it's true for interfacility transports too. You know, we get handed a stack of charts a foot deep if the patient had been there for any length of time and, you know, try to get the important stuff right away because it's going to be driving your treatment decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to understand what's going on with the patient, what, what's, you know, what sort of treatments and medications they've had already so that you don't, you know, mistreat them. So it's, there's a great deal of trying to assimilate a lot of information, you know, quickly, but not in a rush manner. So you're always kind of balancing these, you know, time pressures with mm-hmm. safety and safe practice. So it's, it's a mm-hmm. fascinating sort of, you know, art and science and sort of dance you end up doing. Wow. Wow. That's just incredible. Yeah. Incredible to think about. Um, it's an immense amount of responsibility. 
Yeah. And you've got the, you know, you've got the patient care piece, but then you've got a whole entire aviation piece that accompanies it. So, you know, nowadays folks are trained up in, you know, night vision, goggle technology, you know, talking on the radios, making sure that eyes are out during critical, critical phases of flight or in crowded airspace, you know, making sure they do walk arounds around the aircraft, make sure everything looks good. You know, it's just, there's tons of sort of the aviation safety uh, pieces that people have to be attuned to, mm. you know, equally as much mm-hmm. as the, you know, the patient safety piece. So the complexity is, I think what draws a lot of people and it really can't be underestimated, especially when it comes to, you know, training and resources to try to optimize the, the environment that people work in as much as possible. It's mm. fascinating. It is fascinating. I feel like this is a great segue to probably what I'm guessing what would, would set you on this new path of where you are now. So Krista, it's my understanding that you, your helicopter actually crashed. What happened and how did that impact you? Do you mind sharing with me and the podcast listeners out there what happened? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. Um, so I want to, you know, preface this by saying that, you know, this was quite a few years ago. This was in 2005. And so, um, you know, the leadership of the organization is turned over and, you know, they're really, it's a whole, you know, the, the, the players have all changed and things like that. So um, when I talk about this, I want to make clear that, um, you know, while it was an incredibly difficult situation, I don't want to point fingers or blame or come across as, you know, unhappy with, you know, the way things were handled, but there was a lot to be learned out of the crash. Um, Mm. First of all, you know, I knew that there were risks with the job when I started, but I didn't ask anything about that. You know, during my interview, I, I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's safe. I'm sure it's fine, which is funny because, um, now that I know what I do now, like there's, there's so much complexity, you know, even with the aviation side of things that it takes a lot of, um, well, there are a lot of moving parts. And if some of those moving parts don't go right, I'm not talking about just mechanics. I'm talking about the whole operation, Mm. then, you know, things can happen. And so um, there've been a lot of improvements made in the industry over the the decades that it's been in existence, um, which is really heartening. But I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what to ask. Um, certainly, there are risks for nurses in healthcare or anybody in healthcare, and um, there are risks in the in the flight um, in the flight world as well. So, um, you know, we I'd been there five years when we got a, um, a the call that our um, aircraft from our northern base had gone missing, and so this was. Um, September 29th of 2005. Mm. And, you know, we, you know, I, I was, I was like, Oh no, cause there's no good reason for this crew and this aircraft to go missing. And so then we got the confirmation that they had crashed into the water and there was, there were no survivors and there was a debris field and things like that. So, mm. you know, we were just, it was devastating. I mean, we, you know, we, you and I just talked about the bonds that exist between the crews and, you know, just how amazing those relationships are. And so if you can imagine, it's hard enough to lose one person, but then to lose three people at once, you know, two nurses and a pilot, Mm. uh, it was just absolutely unfathomably painful. So there was a, you know, an outpouring of support from the community and, and that was really, uh, you know, it was comforting The one of the interesting things about that crash was that it was in kind of a, we were in the process of upgrading the fleet. So, you know, the aircraft were kind of aging. And so um, the administration had taken steps toward replacing those aircraft with new aircraft. So this aircraft was called Augusta Augusta Mark II, uh, the older aircraft. And the difficult thing about the crash is that, well, many things were difficult about it. But one of the difficult things was they were not able to, the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, was never able to discern sort of the cause of the crash because the bulk of the aircraft was irretrievable because of the depth of water it was in. Mm. Um, so here, you know, we've lost these three, three, you know, friends and colleagues. We don't know exactly why it happened. Of course, there's always lots of speculation and 
you know, speculation isn't particularly um, helpful sometimes. And then, um, you know, fast forward just about four weeks, um, you know, I went to work and I was in the new aircraft. It was a brand new, it was called an Augusta Power. Um, it, it had a lot of the new technology, kind of the bells and whistles that were um, sort of purported to be, you know, kind of the silver bullet Mm-hmm. For safety at the time, you know, the industry had had a rash of um, crashes and for, you know, a, lo- a lot of different reasons. But, you know, it was felt that, you know, some of the technology would would be helpful. And and so this this aircraft was brand new. It was hot off the press. And um, we got paged out to pick up a, a gentleman from a, a, a little community hospital uh, far away Um who was purported to have a um, an aortic dissection. And so, you know, this is like best reason for air medical transport. You know, you've got somebody who's critical, who's in an outlying facility, they don't have the resources to care for him. And, you know, you need, you need uh, time and you need people that can manage the patient and to get him up to a tertiary um, or quaternary, you know, care center. And so, um, you know, we got paged out, we lifted, we headed south to this facility. And, you know, partway there, the weather came down. We have, you know, we have strict weather minimums um, that are outlined by the FAA. And then, you know, programs themselves can also have even stricter weather minimums if they want to. And so um, because we had, you know, we practiced good crew resource management, we communicated with our pilots well, I wouldn't have been uncomfortable at all to say, hey, you know, looks like the weather's coming down, you know, are we below minimums? Do we need to turn around? Um, I didn't have to say that because he said it first. He said, you know, the weather's coming down. We're going to need to abort. And so um, we did. And, you know, that might seem like a hard decision when you've got somebody who seems like they're in dire straits far away and you feel like it's incumbent upon you to help them. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we can't sacrifice safety or, you know, an aircraft full of people to continue under those conditions. Mm-hmm. But what the alternative the alternative was was to potentially find a place where the weather was better and rendezvous with the patient um, oh, someplace okay. other than the than the referring facility. And so our um, our pilot got a hold of our communication specialist and said, "Hey, listen, you know we got weather. We're going to turn around, but why don't you see if you can find a place where the weather's better and we'll meet them there." So they grounded the patient north with paramedics, um, and then when they got close, we headed back south again went to meet them on a, a rooftop helipad of a hospital um, just as a rendezvous point. And so, you know, we get there, we landed um, uneventfully. Um, the paramedics were there with the patient. So, um, you know, I approached the patient like I always did. And I said, hi, I'm Krista. I'm one of the flight nurses. We're going to take you up to the, you know, the big hospital. And I did the, you know, the cursory, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. And he, he, he was really just really mellow and he seemed kind of pretty comfortable and he said, I'm okay. And I was like, huh, this does not appear to be, this is not presenting like any dissecting aortic aneurysm that I've mm. experienced. Right. Cause you know, usually they're really, they're Scared. sick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're in, they're in pain or their, their blood pressures are all over the place or they're vomiting yeah. or, you know, it's, it's usually, you know, not easy to manage. So, um, you know, I thought, oh, you know, maybe this will be relatively uneventful. So we um, we loaded him up and we secured him. And we had a really, I feel, even looking back now, a really progressive um, safety culture at the time. And so we'd had survival training, you know, in the, in the winter, um, in the summer, and also in water where they, you know, kind of strap you into a, uh, like a PVC piping cockpit mm-hmm. and throw you in the water upside down and you have to egress out of the aircraft. So we, we would do those drills um, just for survival training purposes. And we carry survival gear, you know, in case we get stranded or in, in case something happens, we're far away. Um, we knew how to shut down the aircraft and disengage the, the fuel lines and battery and all those kinds of things. And so that was all part of our training. Um, and so, you know, I say that the reason I say that is to say that we load the patient, we secured the patient, you know, as per protocol, and we secured all of our gear we were taught to secure all of our gear on on every leg of every flight because when you think about the g forces in a 
in an accident, if you've got like a cardiac monitor or an infusion pump that's not secured, you know, those could, could produce devastating injuries. And so we, you know, we um, had learned that that was important to do. And we did that. And then of course we, you know, secured ourselves in the same way. Um, We were outfitted in Nomex flight suits, which are um, fire resistant. You have to wear natural fibers underneath them Mm -hmm. though, in order to make that work. Um, Helmets, visors, chin straps, high tops, steel toed boots, um, you know, all of that gear. So we loaded up, secured the patient, secured ourselves, secured all of our gear, indicated that we were ready to lift when our pilot asked if we were ready to lift and we lifted from this rooftop helipad. So, um, you know, when you fly, you become intimately familiar with the the noise the engine makes. Mm -hmm. And so the first indication that I had that something was wrong was the engine noise. We, we had lifted some distance above the rooftop helipad and I could hear the engine, like it started to decrescendo. Mm -hmm. And then sort of simultaneously we were losing not only lift, but altitude. So all of this is happening simultaneously. And I was like, you know, are you, you know, (laughs) effing kidding me right now? Like I knew we were going to crash. And, oh you know, my so my, my, my thoughts immediately go to the service we had just had, you know, oh. for our other crew members. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how can our um, organization, how can our families, how can our community go through this again? You know, and I'm picturing, you know, the three pairs of boots, the, the three helmets sitting there. And I was just like, oh my gosh, it's going to be me and this crew. And, you know, I had a quick chat with God and basically, you know, this is all happening simultaneously, but when I remember it, you know, when they, when people go through traumatic experiences, they often talk about how time warps Mm -hmm. and time definitely warped for me. It it completely slowed down. So when I remember the sequence, it is in like slow motion, slow motion, like frame by frame, you know, movie clip almost. And so, uh, you know, the aircraft impacted the, the, the building, the, the helipad had a retaining wall around it. And so it's 1030 at night, it's dark. I'm in the aft facing seat. So I'm facing the tail um, of the aircraft. I'm sitting right behind the pilot. So we're sort of, you know, back to back in our seats. And um, one of the things I remember thinking, I was trying to remember how high up we were, you know, not oh, that that. Uh-huh. You know, not that I could have done anything about it, but I think it would have brought me some semblance of control in my head, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and how I couldn't remember. And I, be, right? Because yeah, you're trying to figure exactly. Out how how, yeah, going to be. Exactly, exactly. So you know, I remember being frustrated that I couldn't remember how high up we were. And then I'm thinking, you know, what can I do? What can I do to fix this? Because that's how we all are, right? You know, ICU, <laughs> ER nurses, well, nurses in general. Yeah. And then you know, especially you get to the flight world, and it's like control, control, control. You know, bring order out of chaos. And then I realized that there was nothing. Um, but you know, fortunately, because we'd had that training, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to buckle my belts. I didn't have to cinch them down. I didn't have to secure a bag. Not that I would have had time to anyway because we were trained to do that, you know, sort of preemptively. So I was grateful. I was really grateful for our training. Um, so the, the aircraft, you know, I think probably the, the main rotor disc or the tail rotor impacted the retaining wall of the helipad. And then it was just like this explosion. Like it felt like everything was kind of coming apart. If you can imagine, you know, the rate of speed that a rotor system travels at and just the energy that's included in that, like oh it, it just exploded. And, you know, and the, the, the distal tail section of the helicopter came off um, and we were, it was just so incredibly violent. You know, I can't even really describe how it felt and the noise. And then, you know, I mean, like I'd been a nurse for quite a while at that point. I knew penetrating trauma, blunt trauma, rapid deceleration injuries. And I was waiting for those, you know, to happen to me and to us. And so I just sort of tried to make myself as small as I could because there was shrapnel and, you know, fragments flying everywhere. And, you know, we're, we were falling and falling and falling. It seemed like such a long time. And I remember thinking, you know, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And then I got to a point where I was like, you know, you might not come out of this. And mm-hmm. that was really a devastating thought to have. And so, you know, it was interesting because we impacted the ground 
And, you know, we impacted in a courtyard that looked like freshly tilled soil. And I'm so grateful for that because I think it distributed a lot of the energy that would have otherwise, you know, gone, you know, straight up our spines or, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, the axial loading type of injury, because, you know, you sit up straight when the, when the impact happens, because we, you know, have sort of semi energy attenuating seats in some of the aircraft in some of the positions. Right. Uh, Right. So we, so, you know, we impacted the ground. My partner was sitting across me so I could see she was conscious I looked over at the patient. I was like, are you okay? And he said, yeah. And he's, I mean, again, he was so, yeah, I'm like, all right, I'll have what he had. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I could hear the pilot, our pilot. And he, I said, we're okay. You know, we're okay. We're back. We're okay back here. And he said, I'm shutting it down. I'm contacting comms. And so, um, if you look at the image of the aircraft, um, you know, you'd see that the the rotor the rotor system was completely chewed up, except for one rotor blade. It was kind of split in half, but the distal half was was kind of it was holding on by like a, a wire, you know, and it was still kind of flopping around. And one of the things that I had learned in water egress training was to wait till the the engine noise stops and to wait till the rotor stop turning before you bail out of the aircraft. Because I can assure you, the first thing you want to do. <laughs> is bail out of the aircraft, but I'm so grateful I didn't because, you know, I could have bailed right out into that rotor. And so yeah. like, what a tragedy to be, to survive the impact, oh. um, but not, not be kind of trying to prepare for what came next. So, um, you know, the hospital staff came out because, you know, people are so, they're so kind and, they, and they're so lovely and they come up to help us load the patient. And then they typically go stand behind the door next to the lip pad and watch out the window. And we all wave at each other when we take off. It's just, mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite, you know, memories from flying. It's just those relationships you have mm-hmm. with the referring facilities. Um, but all they saw was, you know, helicopter lifted and then just basically came apart. And so they went screaming back down to the hospital and, and said, Hey, you know, the helicopter's down and they all came out and they, they helped us, you know, they called 911 and, you know, the fire department came and um, I'm so grateful that we didn't burn, you know, but oh the God. tail, what was left of the tail was smoking. And so, and, you know, clearly that's a situation you need the fire department for. And so they came and then our patient went in to be evaluated. And eventually we all went in to be evaluated in the hospital that we were at. Um, but, you know, it was, it was, it was very surreal. And the reason for it, I know you asked, um, was that, so our pilot, he was, he's a super experienced pilot. He had nearly 8,000 hours in helicopters. Mm-hmm. He was a Vietnam era pilot. Um, you know, and he's a wonderful person, you know, compassionate, really dedicated to the mission um, of, you know, getting patients to where they needed to be. Um, but what had happened was, you know, this is a brand new aircraft to us and he accidentally le- lifted with one engine and idle and it's a twin engine aircraft and it, it can't sustain those cr- kind of critical phases of flight on one engine. Oh. And so, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, after we talk a little bit, I'd love to kind of circle back around with you on, you know, sort of how he was responded to and yeah. you know, how there were a lot of lessons that were learned um, from what happened there. Yeah. I mean, my first initial thought was, Clearly, he didn't have enough training on the on this new uh, aircraft. It's right? a good thought. Yep. <laughs> I mean, if you're not automat if you're not automatically going to do the thing that you know you're supposed to have a lot of, I'm guessing, just like muscle memory. And anyway, I don't, I don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we- it, w- it was. You know, so I'll I'll, just, I'll give you the long and the short of it. Um, so he was fired. Um, well, so, you know, and, and so this is really interesting now because this is 2005, right? And this is kind of before the just culture yeah. had shown up on the scene or maybe it was just beginning back then. Um, and so it's interesting because I really struggled with that. Um, the fact that he was you know, kind of fired. And then from what I could see, and I could be wrong, this is just, just from my perspective, 
um, that was that, you know, we've taken care of the problem. And so it was really interesting to me. And this has been, you know, sort of my professional, you know, per life's pursuit um, mm. after this is looking at how we manage adverse events mm. and, you know, both in the aviation realm, but also now with my current job in the clinical realm. And so um, it was interesting because when the NTSB fi report finally came out, it takes a long time for the NTSB reports to come out, like a year or two, sometimes more, depending on the nature of the crash. But when the NTSB report came out, you know, they cited inconsistencies um, in his training. You're exactly right. And he had never been trained on, uh, there's a feature that was called the limit override switch. Not that it probably would have made a difference in this case, but he'd never been trained in that. And then in my opinion, you know, we know that humans err, we know that humans are fallible. So we should design our machines, you know, to capture any of those errors and not allow them to happen, or at least not allow them to result in catastrophe, right? Mm -hmm. We need to design our systems, our machines, and those types of things to compensate for humans, right? So I felt that there was a, um, a design flaw in the aircraft because it allowed the pilot to pick up an idle, period. Right. Like, I feel like there should be something that disallows that. And then, you know, there are some other things like one of my, um, my friends and colleagues had gone to work at another flight program and came back and said, hey, you know, we've got this uh, challenge and response checklist that we use over here that might be useful at this organization. Um, but that didn't really get um, kind of didn't get any traction until after the crash. And then, you know, the other interesting thing is this wasn't the first time that the, this kind of accident had happened across the country. It had helped it happened at other places, but the difference was it had happened on a runway or a tarmac. And so the pilot, you know, lifts and realizes what's happened and sets it back down, mm. you know? And so, you know, the question that I ask, you know, when I talk about this at like safety days and things like that is, you know, those pilots were that they just, you know, lifted accidentally with one engine idle and set it back down. Did they, did they tell their leadership that they did that? Or did they have sort of the no, no harm, no foul attitude, which is kind of an outcome bias, right? It doesn't matter what the outcome is. What matters is the process. You know, it's, it's a flawed process. So what can we do to fix the process? And so it depends on the culture. You know, it depends yes. on the culture of the organization. If you're going to get beat up for making, um, for airing like that, then you're not going to talk about these things. And the problem is we don't talk about these things and we have to wait <laughs> until they're catastrophic you know, in order to address them. And so, you know, those are, those were my biggest takeaways is, you know, to look at human error, to look at just culture, to look at things like the human factors analysis and classification system, which looks at sort of a Swiss cheese, you know, model of let's look at the, all of the upstream factors mm -hmm. that contributed to, you know, to the event and, you know, for me in my current position, you know, I really emphasize to our crews, you know, you tell us where the weaknesses in the systems are or where you think the weaknesses in, you know, equipment or processes or expectations or those types of things so that we can fix those together before something catastrophic happens. So that was, you know, I think I, I'm so grateful to survive this. I'm so grateful that I didn't have a traumatic brain injury or a spinal cord injury or severe burns because a lot of our survivors in the industry do. Um, and I'm grateful that it sort of set me on this trajectory to figure out how we can, you know, better manage adverse events. And then PS, take care of the people at the heart of those adverse events. So take care of our pilots, take care of our clinicians that make mistakes. I mean, we've all made mistakes, right? As clinicians. Absolutely. I, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about that, but I have a question first, and that is, how did you take care of yourself? Like, what was, <laughs> I'm sure this was a crazy traumatic event, especially reliving probably the trauma that you just had just experiencing losing a crew. And like, I can't imagine what you had to deal with emotionally after that. Like, what, how did you get help or, or get, I mean, did you seek I don't know, therapy or anything like that? Heck yeah, I did. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened first. <laughs> yeah. I'm standing, okay, you know, back to the night of the crash. Oh, yeah. I'm standing next to the wreckage of the aircraft, and they had taken the patient in 
to be evaluated. Um, you know, everybody, almost everybody had gone inside and I'm standing there and there were just a couple people left. And I, and I thought, I feel completely numb. Mm. I'm like, I do not feel, I'm not angry. I'm not sad. I'm not afraid. I'm not joyful. I am literally nothing. And I thought that was weird considering what had just happened. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, this is probably going to, you know, kind of bite in the ass down the road. Um, but I'll just, I'll take it because it's not too terribly distressing right now. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I went into the hospital to be evaluated and then I took a couple weeks off of work because, you know, I had soft tissue injury. I kind of, I feel like I'd, you know, kind of gotten beat up pretty badly. Um, had some pretty good, you know, bruises and stuff like that, um, mm. which, you know, that's fine. I'll, I'll take it. Um, and then I went back to work and, you know, the organization was, was really great about, you know, I, I got to go up with a couple other flight nurses, you know, they came with me kind of on a test flight, had a great mm -hmm. pilot, you know, took me up, we flew around. They're like, you know, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I think I'm good, you know? And, and then they got a call and they're like, well, do you mind if we go pick up a patient? <laughs> I'm like, nope, let's go. So, you know, they were responsible for taking care of the patient. I was just kind of along for the ride. Um, and I'm like, okay, you know, yeah, I can, I can do this. Well, you know, that lasted for maybe about three months. But what I was noticing is that I had this just low level of feeling unsettled all the time. And I'm like, this is not comfortable at all. Hmm. And I was also very, um, I found that I was kind of sensitive to noises. You know, here's your, <laughs> here's your foreshadowing for the post-traumatic stress yes. situation. Right? I know. I'm like, <laughs> that's PTSD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here it comes. Oh, boy. So... It was interesting because, you know, I, I'd had, you know, a, about a, you know, just over a 15 year career at this point in pretty high, high octane environments, you know, the emergency department, the burn unit, which, you know, God bless the people that can sustain their careers there. Cause that is a tough place to work. Um, and then, you know, in working as a flight nurse for five years, you know, I, you know how it is. Like we've all seen some really horrific things, tragedies, human suffering, you know, and, you know, yes. we manage, we, or we, we manage or we think we manage anyway. Um, so there was that, you know, we all have our own sort of personal tragedies in our personal life, which, mm -hmm. you know, there's that. Um, and then the recent loss of our crew, which was obviously devastating. And then now this, so, you know, this happens, I'm numb, three months later, it was like the sky fell on my head. It was the weirdest thing. Hmm. It was like everything that I had compartmentalized, like all the compartments popped open and I was like, <laughs> oh no, oh my God. <laughs> it was so, it was so dreadful. I can't even explain how bad it was. I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I'm like, uh, yeah, I need some help immediately. Like this is really brutal. And it kind of started out, um, you know, it, it felt like, it felt like all of that happened. And I had this just massive wave of anxiety, mm. which was not, it wasn't like me. That was it, like, I never had any trouble sleeping. I wasn't an anxious person. Um, you know, so it was really foreign to me and that scared me. Mm. Like it's, it really scared me. And I think my fear of it compounded it. Right. And so then I began to have um, sleep issues. Like I couldn't go to sleep. And then if I could go to sleep, I'd wake up, you know, like bolt upright in the middle of the night, you know, like sweaty and to Kipnik, you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. what? It was awful. Like it was like, it was, it was physically painful. And so um, I was like, you know, yeah, no, I, I definitely need help. So I went and got counseling. I read a lot, you know, I talked I talked to anybody that would listen to me and I thank God I have an absolutely wonderful family and incredible friends, mm -hmm. you know, and I had, you know, this poor handful of friends, I'm sure they're sick of me, you know, showing up on their doorstep, but I'm like, you know, I need somebody to talk to and they, yep, come on in. <laughs> so they were so gracious. Um, but I'll tell you what really, one of the things that helped the most was one of the nurses, a close friend of mine that I used to fly with gave me a, um, it was a CD of a symposium that was done by Dr. Stephen, Stephen Southwick, who is head of psychiatry, I think at Yale. 
and it was on uh, PTSD. And specifically, it was on the physiology of traumatic stress. And I was like, I listened to that and I was like, oh, I finally get it. Because it talks about how you, you know, you take in the trauma through your senses and, it, you know, it doesn't, the, 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 it's so individual, you know, the source of the trauma doesn't have to be a helicopter crash. It right. can be, you know, what you see at work. It could be a ma mistake that you made. It could be, you know, anything could, you know, can traumatize somebody. Um, so I think it's important not to compare, you know, traumas to each other. You know, I hear people say, oh, well, you know, I'm struggling, but I wasn't in a helicopter crash. So it really doesn't. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, that's not true at all. You know, your traumas just as valid as anybody's, right? Mm -hmm. So he he talked about how, you know, your amygdala is kind of the alarm center for your brain. And, you know, you get the stimulus and the amygdala decides whether you need to respond. And then if you do, then it, it you know, sends a signal, signal to your hypothalamus, which activates your sympathetic nervous system. You get this hit of adrenaline and you jump out of the way of the bus before it hits you and you, before it's even registered, right? Yeah. Well, you know, those of us who are in, you know, these high stress environments in the hospital, first responders, you know, we've got our pedal to the metal all the time, right? And we've got adrenaline, we've got cortisol and these stress hormones, you know, circulating. And it's like, once I understood more that the physiolo physiology of traumatic, traumatic stress, the more my symptoms made sense to me. I'm like, oh, I'm uh, my sympathetic nervous system is in overdrive. My amygdala has been hijacked. And like, that's a thing. If you Google amygdala hijack, you'll see that, right? Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, I went, I, so learning about the physiology, traumatic stress. Um, I know that some people feel like these conversations, you know, there's a stigma attached to that. I never felt that. I'm like, if you have a problem with me <laughs> having a post-traumatic stress injury, you know, number one, as an ER nurse, or number two, just, you know, things we experience in life, number yeah. three, helicopter crash, judge away. I don't care. I'm going for help and I'm going to talk about it, you know, not to say, oh, look at me, I have this, but to say, I want to normalize this conversation. You know, I want people to not be afraid to talk about stuff like this. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I finally also heard about EMDR, which is eye movement mm -hmm. desensitization and reprocessing. Um, that was an incredibly um, beneficial experience for me. I went to a therapist that specialized in first responders who had EMDR in her, her toolkit. Um, you know, people that I trust. Um, in the uh, industry also say that brain spotting is a very useful tool. So, hmm. you know, what those things do are they, they kind of take away the physiologic response. So when you think of a traumatic memory or it makes you think of it, you don't have the fight, flight, freeze response to it. You just think of it like it's just a memory in your long-term memory. Huh. Imagine having that burden lifted. It was just, it was, it was super helpful to me along with cognitive behavioral therapy that just helps you kind of reframe your perspective on the experience. So yeah, I did get help. <laughs> and I, you know what, I go back for tune-ups too, because even in my current position, I'm not taking care of patients. I'm trying to take care of the, the people that take care of patients, but I'm reading, I'm reading their charts. I'm listening to them talk about their adverse, you know, yeah. adverse experience and adverse clinical events. And it's, it's heavy. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that I'll go back in and get tune-ups just to help me, you know, sort of process those things so that they don't, you know, accumulate because otherwise they seem to. Oh my gosh. I, anyway, I just talked for a long time. Sorry. No, it's okay. Krista, <laughs> I, I love that you, first of all, I completely uh, agree with you. I think the more people talk about um, taking care of their mental health or PTSD or whatever it is that helps them feel better is so important. And I think we carry so much, you know, because um, we do see a ton of really effed up stuff, right? So um, yep. I think it's really, I'm excited. I'm going to go, I'm going to look into brain spotting and EMDR. Um, and I do think, I believe in therapy and I see a therapist and I think it's really just so important. And I think the culture of nursing is changing a bit and also in, I think the world about 
being better about taking care of your mental health. But I, I'm so grateful that you talked about what helped you and what worked for you in this really dark time. Yeah. I mean, especially after 2020, if the, if the world does not notice that mental health needs to be a priority and that trauma care needs to be a priority, like psychological mental trauma needs to be a priority. And then, you know, I'd be shocked because, you know, we can see already how, you know, terrifically impacted people are. I mean, we know we have a suicide problem in EMS and, you know, in the, in the first responders and in the hospital, you know, hospital staff, people that, that, you know, have to deal with, with these things day after day. And, you know, what a, a tragedy to lose, you know, people who've dedicated their lives to caring for others mm-hmm. to suicide because they don't have the resources or they're, you know, afraid to talk about these things, you know, what an absolute tragedy. So, you know, the more that we can, you know, especially with the the traumatic stress, you know, it felt to me like a, a you know, like a sort of a neuro in, neuroendocrine or like, you know, biochemically mediated traumatic brain injury. Yeah. And when you look at the physiology of it, that's exactly what it is. And so if we treat it like, you know, post-traumatic stress injury rather than, you know, a disorder necessarily, yeah. you know, I'm not a, a stickler for, you know, sort of the verbiage, but I think that it would be more accepted if people looked at it like an injury. It is. We have a lot of injured people walking around out there and then you add, the grief component to it Mm -hmm. and people are suffering. So um, yeah, I agree with you. I I really hope that, you know, all of these organizations that employ healthcare professionals, first responders become trauma informed, understand what traumatizes people and how to help them mitigate um, the, you know, short and term, short and long-term effects of that. Mm -hmm. This is an aside, but when you, so you are now in this role where you are, what do you say that you were the director of patient safety, patient safety, right. But you're talking to these people who have these sentinel events or adverse events. And do you, do you, I don't know if you do, but do you refer them to seek like therapy and stuff like that? Um, we always tell them, you know, it's funny because when I'm reviewing adverse events, I don't really expect, you know, if I ask people if they're okay, uh, what I expect is they're going to say, yeah, I'm fine, which mm-hmm. I know is not true. Yeah. Um, because they don't want to really, I think, necessarily talk about it in that venue. So what I do talk about, I try to educate them on the second victim experience, mm-hmm. which is a thing. You know, like if you look at it, Dr. Susan Scott is one of the subject matter experts. I know that um, Sydney Decker has done some work on that, but it's the, you know, sort of the psychological and emotional toll that people experience when they make a mistake, Um, which, you know, hello, we've all been there, right? I know what that feels like. And I let them know that I know what that feels like too, so that they know that they're they're not alone in what they're going through, but... Um, we talk about the second victim phenomenon and then make sure that they know that we have resources for them mm-hmm. and give them the links to that information so they don't have to say yes or no, you know, I need it because maybe they don't want to tell us that. Yeah, um, right. yeah. So we gave it to them to make sure that they have it. Um, and also, you know, I, I tell people, you know, my door is always open. If you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to to talk with you, I'm not a not a therapist, but I'm happy to talk with you and get you connected with resources if if you would like that. So, um, you know, while I'm the director of patient safety, I am equally as committed to the health and well being of our crews. Yeah. You know, one because I want them to have joy in their lives, <laughs> two because I want them to have sustainable careers, and three because you know their level of resilience or their level of stress dictates, you know, how they manage human factors and how well they execute crew resource management and, you know, sort of how well they can manage conflict and communicate and things like that. So it goes to patient safety as well. Yeah. You know, if our individuals aren't, you know, healthy and in a, in a good place, you know, that we see that, you know, sort of reflected in, in adverse events. 
And, you know, like I said, we really want to optimize the environment that our folks work in as much as possible and supporting them in this really, really hard work is one of the, one of the priorities there. I'm so glad that the tides have changed. You were, I'm sure you remember because I remember, and I was a young nurse, but the Basically, that nurse who had a second victim experience in, in at Children's, you know, um, that yep. was very publicized, and she was yep. fired, ostracized, vilified, and um, you know, was an excellent nurse. Had never made any kind of mistake like that before, and it was—I mean, anybody could have done it, anybody. Um, and she, you know tragically took her own life because she she didn't have the support she didn't you know like obviously this is the kind of thing that um we all and, and you're doing it you're you're actively doing it, is trying to prevent yeah oh for sure you know and i i tell you know people at our organization um we can't we can't have that you know we can't have people taking their own lives because you know of a mistake and you're right you know it could happen to anybody and so you know, when I review these events, I go back up through the Swiss cheese and I basically start with the systems. And then I look at the the human factors and I look at the context. And then, you know, I feel like in a lot of cases, if we're not looking at ourselves in the mirror as an organization, then where's the shared accountability? Mm-hmm. And the shared accountability piece is a foundational pillar of a just culture. So it's really hard to say that we have a just culture if, you know, we look at it, look at a person, you know, apply the algorithm, you know, decide if it was human error, at-risk behavior, reckless behavior, apply the algorithm and move on. If we are not equally, you know, looking hard at the systems um, and the upstream sort of links in the chain or holes in the Swiss cheese or whatever, whatever you want to call it, then we're not going to solve the issues. It's kind of like, you know, my pilot getting fired if we don't go back upstream and fix the fact that you can lift with a helicopter, you know, with, with, with an engine at idle, this is likely going to happen again to somebody else. Right. Cause everything right. else we do is a bandaid. We need to, we need to employ engineering controls. And so if we don't fix those upstream system problems, we're just waiting for the next, you know, fallible human being to wander into the crosshairs of a potentially flawed system. And that's, it's not a just culture. It doesn't solve the problem and it's not a just culture. So, you know, like, do we have lookalike sounding like medications sitting next to each other? You know, can we, you know, engineer shortcuts out of our medication delivery process? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we, how do we do it? I mean, patient safety is a, we have a long way to go, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the best people to get input on that from are the people with boots on the ground, people that do the work every day. Mm-hmm. They know what the problems are, and they also likely know what what great potential solutions are. Yeah, that's so true. I and if you don't speak up about your near misses, honestly, I mean, I'm sure over the years I haven't. I've just been like, oh yeah, I should tell somebody about this, and then I've moved yeah. on because I've got you know interrupted by whatever call light or yeah, doc, no. you know. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, it takes um, speaking up as well and not and not being fearful of being punished that's exactly it and i think you know if we're ever going to get on top of you know the adverse events that happen adverse clinical events that happen you know in healthcare whether it's in the hospital or or pre-hospital we have to create a culture where people can speak and speak freely and speak transparent transparently and where we have system, systems in place to for them to do that and to fix the issues and provide loop closure, you mm. know. And I know it's a tall order. I know it's a really tall order. But, um, you know, I think, you know, we, we really have to move in that direction and get away from this. And it's hard because our current, you know, sort of so, sociocultural political situation is very much fixated on you know, little tiny sound bites of information. Like this is how communication takes place nowadays, right? You know, it's through tiny sound bites of information and, you know, sort of instantaneous judgment. And so, you know, our society is sort of geared toward blame and judging an individual without even, you know, finding all the facts, right? And I see that and I try, you know, my um, successor in my, the position that I was in previously, I was like, you know, 
I've walked into so I've been humbled many times. I've walked into so many cases where I'm like, oh, I think I have a good idea what happened here. And then when I listened, like God gave us two ears and a mouth for one re- one mouth for one reason, right? <laughs> 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 listen more than we talk, right? So when I got myself to listen more than I talked, which it doesn't seem like I've mastered <laughs> on this oh, call today. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm interviewing you. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I would consistently find that it wasn't it wasn't what I thought and you know that we could have these really constructive conversations involving sort of the 360 degrees of perspectives involved help people understand each other's perspectives and really work collaboratively towards solutions and you know it's not perfect I know I'm kind of making it sound like it's it's you know this great process but it's a work in progress but that's sort of the you know, the fundamental philosophy behind it. Well, you got to set the bar high, right? It's good to have a bar, high bar, high bar to reach for, <laughs> right? I Trying. definitely, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I have just been riveted um, listening to you and talking with you and hearing your story and also listening to you talk about your current role and, and what you do makes me just want to be better. Like, just show up and be a better better just strive to do better and I mean there's always there's always room for improvement um and I, I do love this piece about suspending judgment until you kind of know really the full story and I think we should do that for one another um, oh for sure I agree 100% with one another and then you know even with patients that is the beauty mm. of nursing to me like we have the opportunity. I can't tell you how sort of, um, you know, honored and blessed I feel to have heard the thousands and thousands of stories I've heard from patients, you know, over the course of my career. And, you know, more recently, the stories from caregivers. And, you know, wow, just hearing so many different perspectives and experiences and really understanding how people got to where they are, you know, in life or their career in a particular situation. And like, you know, I just love people and, you know, I think humans are amazing and I just love, you know, the different stories and the differences between people and and just, you know, I just feel so privileged to have been a nurse at the bedside, you know, for 25 years. Although I will say, you know, by the end of that 25 years, I'd seen enough to know that I'd seen enough really (laughs) in terms of, you know, the just struggles that people have in the and the human suffering and so i figured you know if i if i am not really in a in a place where i can take care of patients directly anymore then maybe i can sort of help take care of the people that take care of the patients and then also try to you know help create a, a better environment to do that in mm. but um i love what you're doing with this podcast i feel like the voices of nurses are so important and need to be heard um thank you so just amazing work you're doing thank you do you have any um, last closing thoughts at all? Oh, yeah. You know, I would just say never give up. You know, never give up on yourself. Obviously, never give up on life. It was, you know, I'd say probably four years before I got, you know, I didn't get the EMDR right away. I didn't even know about it for a lot of years later. So it was about four years before I finally felt like I had my feet solidly back underneath me. And so, you know, when you're working through things, trying to recover, just be patient with yourself and, and have realistic expectations. It's a long, it can, it can be a long process. If you, I feel like if people get the right help right away, it can shorten that process. But in any case, be patient with yourself, have realistic expectations. And, um, you know, if you're inspired to, you know, sort of, raise the bar within and without for patient safety because of this, that's wonderful. But I would also say, I know people's bandwidth is really limited right now because of the, the, uh, you know, the state of the world at the moment. Um, So I would say, be patient with that too. And, you know, we'll all just work together and keep chipping away at, uh, you know, making the world a better place for our patients and for, for our caregivers as well. Yeah. Yep. We all got to do our part. Well, absolutely, Krista, it's just been an honor and a privilege. And I can, I hope someday that I get to meet you in person when this is a little bit different. Um, 
just, I'm just so blessed that I'll shout out to Daniel, um, from nurse story org. He gave me your information and so that we could do this. He is just, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for that. Thank you. I feel like it's just such an honor to talk to you and to hear your story and for you, you to share all of your amazing insight and, you know, um, you offer some hope too, you know, I think for just for us to learn how to be better and more gentle with ourselves and also to try to do the best we can, obviously, when we can. <laughs> when, for when, sure. So, yeah, I mean, the, the hope piece, just real mm-hmm. quick on the hope yeah, piece. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is a critical thing to hang on to. And I think that, you know, when we are face to face with, you know, patients in the hospital right now, COVID, we get, we lose perspective. Um, and so it's important to come up for air and decrease exposure and do something that is, that is unrelated you know, to the, <laughs> the, the suffering every day. Right. Yeah. And realize that, you know, and this is for me too, like as a patient safety person, I, I look at adverse events all day, every day. I mean, you would think that, I mean, from my perspective, I would think that, you know, is there is is there successful patient care going on someplace? You know what right. I mean? <laughs> right. I mean, right, like right, everywhere, right. not you know, like no, right. so you, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's, yeah, and your perspective can get completely skewed depending on what you're exposed to. So I think if if people recognize that and know that, despite you know what you're seeing right now, um, there is there's definitely hope. There are places where you know things are improving. And things are hopefully going to continue to improve. So hang on to that. And just hang on in general. <laughs> <laughs> we got to hang on, that. everybody. Yeah, no, it's okay. That's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to close this episode out by saying what I normally do, which is stay safe and stay sane. And we'll see you on the next one. Amen. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you are listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one.